This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Louis Armstrong. This is the first song I ever played for my little girl. She watched it on YouTube. We'll get to that a little bit later. On this day in history, Louis Armstrong died. And there's nobody who has written more about or written better about Louis Armstrong than the Wall Street Journal's Terry Teachout. His book in 2009, Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong, is just spectacular. Pick it up. You can get it for nothing now on Amazon. You won't be able to put it down. It's so beautiful. And he also is a playwright. He reviews plays for the Wall Street Journal. Well, he tried to write one, and it was a great success. And it's called Satchmo at the Waldorf. One of the hardest parts of writing any biography is finding a fit subject. But sometimes they're in plain sight. Despite his incalculable contributions to American life, there had never really been an adequate narrative biography of Louis Armstrong. Why do you think that is? The biggest problem, I think, was that um, it wasn't until after the earlier biographies had been written that Armstrong's private tapes became available to researchers. Um, Armstrong was one of the first people in America to own a tape recorder. Uh, he, he bought an early model around 1947, 1948, and he bought it originally to tape his shows so that he could listen to them and perfect them. But back then, of course, tape recorders were a tremendous novelty. People played with them. And ultimately, Armstrong uh, started using his tape recorder to tape private conversations, not secretly, but uh, he would just leave it running at dinner parties. He would leave it running at the dressing room. He would dictate memories into it. Uh, he would dictate letters into it. And he preserved all of these tapes. Uh, by the end of his life, he had a, about more than 600 reel-to-reel tapes that were full of the kind of material that I'm describing to you. <clears throat> and this is heaven for a writer. It was heaven for a writer, and everybody knew that he'd made these tapes, but everybody also assumed that they were not playable, that they had been stored in the attic. You know, reel-to-reel tapes deteriorate fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, uh, the tapes were all playable. They were conserved by the Armstrong Archives at Queens College. They were digitally transferred to uh, CDs. They were indexed. At this point, they were made available to researchers, and this was the exact moment when I decided to write a biography. So suddenly... I had access to an enormous amount of material about Armstrong <clears throat> that no previous biographer had had, and it made a tremendous difference for me. Oh, my goodness. Writers uh, also, Terry, I believe, try to solve some mysteries. I mean, ultimately, you, you need to be surprised by something or advance the narrative in some way, or why bother writing? Uh, it certainly can't be for the money. That we know. You once <laughs> said that you wanted to know whether the man we saw on stage and on film was the same man off the stage. Yes. Talk about that. I knew that Armstrong was more complicated than he seemed. He, he couldn't not have been. He was a creative genius, and there's no such thing as a simple genius. 
I knew from having met people who knew Armstrong and having read everything about him that I could get my hands on that he had a temper, uh, that it was sometimes quite startling to the people he worked with. Um, I knew that, that he had opinions about people he had worked with, about the world he had lived in, that were quite a bit sharper than what he had said in public for public consumption. And I thought it would be interesting to really try to explore Armstrong's life with the help of of his private tapes and find out whether there really was another Armstrong, a hidden Armstrong, uh, uh, you might say a darker Armstrong. And that was part of what, what motivated me to write the book. And, you know, what's the pro- before we dig into the, the biography itself and the details of his life, what single thing surprised you the most, Terry? Well, there's a sense in which nothing surprised me personally, because I went in knowing an enormous amount about Armstrong. Uh, For me, uh, hearing the tapes was a matter of confirming things that I had suspected. Uh, I mean, there were small surprises, but uh, uh, there was nothing that, that shocked me personally. But I knew that what I was finding, uh, what I was finding additional material to support was really going to be startling to people who only knew Armstrong through his music and through his television and film appearances. The Armstrong that we know from uh, the Ed Sullivan show, if you're old enough to remember him from back then, uh, the guy who seemed entirely happy, just a a radiant son of happiness, uh, was not, he wasn't untrue. Armstrong was, in a sense, really like that. But there was more to him than that. And so I think what will surprise people who read my book and who see my, my play, which I wrote about Armstrong after the book, is to find out that Armstrong was a man with a temper, that Armstrong was uh, a man who could be quite difficult, uh, could be quite dark, uh, uh, had a, a depressive, almost passive side that came out sometimes, um, and for those who have the mistaken notion that Armstrong was some kind of old-fashioned Uncle Tom, the biggest surprise of all is obviously to find that Armstrong was, in fact, a very realistic, disillusioned man who understood the world around him, who knew the score on race relations in the 50s, um, and who was prepared to speak very frankly about these things. Yet none of the things I have just said to you contradict the Armstrong that we do all know, because he was basically, I think, a fundamentally happy and fulfilled man. Uh, It was just that there was more to him than that. And that's what I tried to get at in writing Pops, my biography. And when we come back, we're going to learn a lot more of what there was to this iconic figure. Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong, Terry Teachout, celebrating on this day in history... Louis Armstrong's passing in 1971.
Darling, this is Louis. Darling, it's so nice to have you back where you belong. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Terry Teachout on this day in history. Louis Armstrong died. And he came into millions of homes in this country. We're going to talk about in the, in, about that in a bit with Terry. But I wanted to pick up on this idea that though Louis Armstrong was a happy person in general, he had all these complicated uh, sides and aspects and dimensions to his personality. And by the way, Terry, any of us who are fundamentally happy or any of us who know fundamentally happy people know that fundamentally happy people have tempers. They have yeah. a dark side, and that they're human beings. Absolutely, absolutely right. And Armstrong was all of these things. Uh, the people I spoke to who had actually worked with him, played in his band, you know, all talked about how, without warning, he would explode into these red rages of wrath. And then they would go away, you know, like a, like a summer storm will blow out. Uh, but while they were happening, they were astonished. Uh, this was just not consistent with... The Armstrong they thought they knew. I think that really surprised me was how forthcoming all of these people were uh, in, in talking about this. At the same time, these are people who, without exception, said that they loved Louis Armstrong. I have never spoken to or read the account of anyone who knew Armstrong who didn't love him. Uh, he seems to have been that kind of unique personality. I, I sometimes like to say that What's interesting about Armstrong is that he's, I think, a fundamentally good and, and, and fulfilled and happy man who's not boring. There's nothing boring about him at all. You know, he's a larger-than-life figure who lived an extraordinarily fascinating life. There's nothing dull about him. And yet he's a good man, a kind man, decent man, yeah, and a happy man. He's also the first black man that Americans really allowed into their TV rooms I mean, into their living rooms through TV, through the radio, through movies, through magazines. I mean, this is truly the first African-American male Americans knew. Yes, that's quite right, and it's awfully easy to forget. I mean, remember, we're talking about a man who was born in 1901, uh, who became a national celebrity known not just to uh, music lovers, jazz lovers, but to the public at large in the 30s, and who was before the public all the way to his death in 1971. So he's not our contemporary, and it's easy for us to forget just how important it was that he was embraced by people uh, who, I, I think in many cases, white people who had never really had these feelings about a black artist, a black entertainer, maybe not about a black person at all. That's a big, big thing in, in the, the social history, the cultural history of America. You bet. And let's talk about time and place, because all stories, and we learn this in Aristotle's Poetics, we learn this about all storytelling. It's character, it's time, and it's place. So let's talk about place first. New Orleans. It's where his life started. What role did New Orleans play in the shaping of Louis Armstrong's career and life, Terry? Well, it, it was the soil in which he grew. He was born in 1901. He, he liked to say, and I think he really believed, that he was born on July 4th, uh, 1900. Uh, but his birth certificate has since been discovered. He was born on August 4th, 1901. He was born, he was illegitimate. Uh, he was the son of a, of a worker in a turpentine factory who deserted the family. Armstrong used to say on the day he was born. Uh, 
Uh, he was born and grew up in Black Storyville, uh, the roughest part of New Orleans. His mother was a part-time prostitute. Um, he was, in, to put it as bluntly as possible, born in the gutter. Uh, but it was not your ordinary gutter. It was one in which the air around him was full of music. Because New Orleans, not just Storyville, but all of New Orleans, was a profoundly musical culture around the turn of the century. Jazz was just beginning to take shape when Armstrong was born in 1901. So he was, uh, in a very real sense, present at the creation. And... Um, because he was surrounded by music, but also because he was born into rough, rough circumstances, he became the man whom he became, uh, a genius, a culture-transforming uh, musical figure, but also a man who was absolutely determined to get out of that gutter and to lead a different kind of life from the one into which he had been born. And, you know, we had just done an hour on Irving Berlin not long ago, Terry, and you know, his circumstances were remarkable as well. Yes, you know, his, absolutely. His, not, fa his father's gone. Not at gone. all dissimilar, yeah. Yeah, not at all dissimilar. Jewish, back when Jews were not exactly welcome in this country. Talk a little about those kinds of similarities between the two men. I know you know a lot about Irving Berlin. I do. Um, it's interesting, though, until you just mentioned it now. I never, it didn't occur to me to think of the two men in connection. And, in fact, uh, the connection makes very good sense. Um, you know, Armstrong is descended from slaves, people who have been brought to this country in slavery. Um, he's born into a culture that is prejudiced not just whites against blacks, but light-skinned blacks against dark-skinned blacks. Armstrong was very dark-skinned. And interracial prejudice was, uh, it was taken for granted in New Orleans at the turn of the century and for long after that. Um, he had a little bit of musical training uh, at the, the Waif's home, the, the, the orphanage. That's not quite the right word, but it's the closest we can come to, mm -hmm. uh, in, in which he was schooled. But he was, except for maybe about six months of, of, of very basic musical training, he didn't have formal training. Um, and yet, because he was, like Berlin, uh, an untutored musical genius, um, he was like a human sponge who, who soaked up all of the sounds around him and recreated them in his own image. Uh, and thus you have these two extraordinary men who, who come from broadly similar circumstances who took the sounds around them and made out of them something personal that became central to our culture. Yeah, and it's amazing that a Russian Jew gives us God Bless America and White Christmas and what set me off, Terry, on writing about and thinking about Irving Berlin, I had seen a Bruce Springsteen show one day, and he was about to play This Land is Your Land, uh, which, of course, as he explained to the audience, was a rebuttal to Irving Berlin's song, God Bless America, because there were so many on the progressive left who hated that song. And, and in the end, this was Woody Guthrie's ode against capitalism and against private property in the end, Terry, in a very strange way. Well, Armstrong was not a person who had any great political beliefs. Uh, he didn't vote. Um, he never expressed, so far as I know, any specifically political opinions outside of the very particular context of the civil rights movement. Um, 
to the extent that you can see Armstrong as a political figure, it is in his lifelong belief in the power of hard work and self-help to ennoble the poor. And that is something in which he believed devoutly because he had done it himself. Um, he, he wouldn't have put it this way, but he really believed that there were deserving and undeserving uh, poor people who didn't try to, to better themselves, to, to get out of their original condition. And he had something not unlike contempt for people who didn't make the kind of struggle that he made. And of course, you, in looking back on his own life, and Armstrong, as you know, wrote two autobiographies and spent a great deal of time thinking about the meaning of his life. Armstrong, of course, did forget to factor in the fact that he was a genius, and when a genius pulls himself up by the bootstraps, uh, something different may happen. But he knew absolutely that that, that hard work, that uh, Armstrong was not a bourgeois, but, you know, the kind of the kind of belief in, in leading a, a, a solid, respectable life uh, could change anybody's lot in life. And that is, I think, one of the reasons why he wrote his autobiographies and why he uh, wrote other autobiograph- autobiographical documents that were preserved after his life, because he, he wanted to convey to the world the meaning of his own life as a man who had transformed his lot, who had pulled himself up out of the gutter, through formidably hard work, the work of an artist, the work that is necessary in order to master a musical instrument, to, to, to transform a musical language. He believed in these things passionately. And when we come back, more with the Wall Street Journal theater critic and author of Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong, and also the playwright of Satchmo at the Waldorf. And again, that's Terry Teachout. And on this day in history... Louis Armstrong died. When you smiling, the whole world smiles with you, baby, baby. Yes, when you laughing. When you're laughing Yes, the sun Shining through Yes, and keep on smiling Keep on smiling, baby And I hope This is Our American Stories And on this day in history One of the 20th century's greatest entertainers And one of the most influential jazz musicians of all time Louis Armstrong died and joining us to commemorate his life, Terry Teachout. No one's written more and better about the man and his life. We were just talking about the politicization of Louis Armstrong. And the fact of the matter is, though Louis wasn't political, Terry, others tried to make him political. Others politicized his life. Well, I think, I think is especially in Gillespie's case, this is, this is a generational thing. 
And it's also the way that people respond to father figures. I have a feeling that that has a lot to do with it. Uh, Gillespie, well, let me back up. I mean, Armstrong came along at a time when he never called himself an artist. I think he understood quite clearly what he was. But he called himself an entertainer. Mm -hmm. And that was his self-understanding. Uh, his his intention was to delight the public in any way possible. He also liked to call himself a ham actor. He, he'd talk about wanting to go out on stage and make people happy by telling a joke. Um, Gillespie, although he was a bit of a clown on stage too, saw himself as an artist and being a, a black of the, the next generation. He was disturbed, I think, I think understandably, by Armstrong's uh, stage manner, which was shaped by the minstrel shows that he grew up uh, in that, in that uh, culture. Mm-hmm. And it's just hard for a younger person to imagine uh, what the life of an older person is like. Right. One of the reasons why I wrote Pops uh, was to try to show people that Armstrong, in his own time, into his own generation and the next generation of blacks, was seen not as an Uncle Tom, but as a race hero, as somebody who had 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 done great things and was himself quite obviously proud of his own achievements. Um, Gillespie lived long enough to change his tune about Armstrong. Uh, in his autobiography, written toward the end of his life, he said that he had simply misunderstand misunderstood Armstrong. Young people feel like that toward father figures. That's true. And, it, it, and I think it's also, Terry, that in the end, whether it's theater or whatever it might be, the next generation comes up and it wants to prove the last generation wrong. It wants that's to, right. It that's wants right. to make its claim. But it is quite true that there were those who, who never forgave uh, Armstrong because they, they didn't have the knowledge to see him in historical perspective. And all they saw was uh, this... this happy, grinning man who went out on the Ed Sullivan show and seemed like he didn't have a care in the world and a trouble in the world. And that, 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 that was not the way they thought black artists ought to present themselves. Uh, Miles Davis is the, the, the quintessential example here, uh, someone who absolutely saw himself as an artist, who, who was quite capable of treating audiences with contempt. He was famous sometimes for turning his back on audiences in nightclubs and playing for them. And that was unthinkable to Armstrong because he really thought that it was his job and, in a sense, his duty uh, to, to, to bring happiness. He said, I'm here in the cause of happiness. That was what he understood his art as doing. Yeah, and it's interesting that, uh, you know, we're all a product of our times, and at the same time that Miles Davis was turning his back, Bob Dylan was turning his back, and it became sort of popular to sort of deride being popular or being an entertainer, Terry? Yes, I think part of the difference, of course, is that Miles and Bob Dylan are now themselves historical figures. That's right. We see them as figures of the past. And people who read my book or who see the play that I wrote about Armstrong, uh, which is fictionalized but true to his personality, I think are going to understand that this notion they may have of Armstrong as an Uncle Tom is simply not true. It's not true to the history, it's not true to the facts, it's not true to the way he felt about himself. And when you see him in historical perspective, it's, it's very hard not to come away looking upon him as a heroic figure, uh, a genial, wonderful uh, man who appeared in the cause of happiness, but also, I think, a rather fearless person, 
a person who went into the Deep South in the days of segregation, fronting a mixed band, uh, something that was unthinkable. A person who, when New Orleans passed laws uh, uh, preventing mixed bands from appearing on the bandstand in the city, said that he would never again play in New Orleans until that law was repealed, and he didn't. He also wasn't afraid to take on the powers that be on occasion. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower understood that. Talk about that, Terry. No, that was actually the, the only time in which Armstrong did something that really made news in, a, in what you might call a political context was um, in the 50s, in uh, 57 specifically, when uh, uh, Governor Faubus of Arkansas uh, was determined to prevent the desegregation of the public schools after the Brown v. Board decision. Um, Armstrong, in an interview, spoke out quite passionately against what Faubus was doing. And a few days later, as, as history records, Dwight Eisenhower sent in the National Guard to uh, desegregate the schools. I don't claim cause and effect there, but what Armstrong did and said became a front-page story around the world, in part because it was not the sort of thing that, that he was identified with saying, and yet he was quite passionate in, in attacking Faubus and attacking uh, 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 Eisenhower for being pusillanimous, uh, John Foster Dulles, uh, and he was even he was quite profane about it in private. I mean, he called them names that he could that the newspapers couldn't print. Um, this wasn't characteristic of him, but it was the way he felt. And uh, Joe Glazer, his manager, uh, uh, describing what happened afterwards, said, "You know, this just proves that that that, that Lewis is a real man." And uh, that's that's really, especially when you consider who he was, when he was. He was a popular entertainer in 1957, uh, when segregation was the law of the land. Uh, to have said what he said uh, and stood behind it and absolutely refused to take it back, uh, I think was in many ways a genuinely heroic act. Oh, indeed. And the guy toured, what, Terry, something like 300 days a year? I mean, he made his act, he made his living entertaining folks. That's right. That's right. And here's the striking thing. It was not, insofar as we can tell, held against him. Uh, uh, he wasn't bounced off television shows. He got some hate mail about it. But mostly, I think people just realized that this was a, a man feeling justified anger and speaking out about it in a justified way. And it was Louis Armstrong. You know, it wasn't some uh, uh, a rabble rouser. Right. It was the beloved Satchmo who said these things. And that made a difference, too. Indeed, and because he had not done it before and not after, it, that may have, may have been the ultimate difference, Terry. Yes, it really stands out uh, as one of the key moments in the history of his life. And when we come back, more from Terry Teachout, and nobody's written more about Louis Armstrong, or better, Pops a Life of Louis Armstrong in 2009, and catch it if it comes to a town near you, the play Satchmo at the Waldorf. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're going to go out listening to the great, great playing and the great musicianship. And as we'll learn soon, this simple, simple approach to music that Louis Armstrong championed.
give me a kiss to build a dream on And my imagination will drive upon that kiss This is Our American Story And we're celebrating the life of Louis Armstrong Who died on this day in history On July 6, 1971 And as always, our This Day in History Is brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College A great place to study all the things that matter in life And if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale will get to you Go to hillsdale.edu and take some of their terrific online courses. And rejoining us for this final segment is Terry Teachout, and he's the drama critic at the Wall Street Journal, a critic at large at Commentary, and he's written Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong, that was 2009, and the play Satchmo at the Waldorf. We talked about place, New Orleans, but let's talk about time. If Louis Armstrong had been born... In the hip-hop era of the 1990s in New Orleans, we would have had a very different outcome. Or maybe not. Well, I, obviously, there's no way no, there's no way of knowing. Uh, Armstrong was the right man at the right time, is, is one way to look at it. Uh, jazz had taken shape. He didn't invent jazz. It was a, a completely uh, coherent music by the time he started playing it around, I guess, probably started playing around 1915 or so, uh, something that would be recognizable as jazz. Um, but his genius, uh, which he brought to the rhythmic side of jazz, uh, was electrifying. Uh, he was, in a sense, the very first jazz man to swing in the way we mean the term now, the modern sense of, of jazz's forward rhythmic propulsion. And everybody who heard him in person or who heard his records was galvanized by them. I mean, there were just countless people testified to having heard Armstrong and saying, that's it, I need that, that's what I want to do, that's the way I want to play. Um, very few examples of an artist who single-handedly, by his own example alone, deflected the course of an art form uh, in the way that he did. Um, it's hard to imagine anybody like him coming along 10 or 15 years ago and having that same kind of transforming force. Um, so I think he really was a creature of the moment, but a person who knew what to do with the moment. You, bet. you know, that's, that's really the key, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's not enough to be smart. It's not enough to be talented. Uh, it's not even enough to have good timing. You have to know what to do at the moment. It has to be just a part of you. And it was a part of Armstrong. And it was coupled with this wonderful, engaging personality. That's really an important thing to remember. Um, Sidney Bechet, the great clarinetist and saxophonist, a little bit older than Armstrong, but came up around the same time, uh, was making very much the same kinds of revolutionary innovations in music. But Bechet did not have an attractive personality. He was a, a, a dark, almost paranoid person. He was not a person you would especially want to be like. Well, Louis Armstrong was a person playing music that you wanted to play, living the kind of life you wanted to live, with the kind of personality you wanted to have. That really was an irresistible package. Um, the thing that made the big difference uh, first was making records, which meant that you didn't have to hear him in person. Uh, in order to to feel his genius. And then a little bit later, network radio and movies, uh, which uh, 
brought him to the white audience, which uh, hadn't known about him before. I mean, in, 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 the late, in 1929, 1930, if you were a white person, you would have known about Armstrong if you were one of that rather small number of, of white people who sought out uh, black records, race records, or if you happened to see him on Broadway uh, during the short time that he appeared uh, in the show Hot Chocolates, which was his Broadway debut in 1929. Most people just didn't know about him. But radio, and, and I think above all movies, introduced Armstrong, both the musician and Armstrong, the personality, to the great American public, which means simply by virtue of numbers, the white public. Uh, ben Crosby did that, you know. It was Crosby who had been profoundly influenced as a musician by Armstrong, and who, when he became the biggest thing in Hollywood uh, in the mid-30s, uh, insisted that Armstrong be allowed to co-star with him in one of his very first pictures and to receive above the title star billing along with Crosby. That triggered Armstrong's film career, and it was the film career that made him what we now call a superstar. My goodness, that almost makes him the Branch Rickey in a way of, yes, of there's Louis' some, life. there's something to that. I mean, Armstrong, because of the kind of person he was, sooner or later these things would have happened for him. But, but Crosby, because he was in such a position of power in Hollywood in the early to mid-30s, was able to cut through the crap, so to speak, yep. and say, if you want me, you have to have him. And Armstrong, being one of the most profoundly photogenic people who ever lived, you know, cameras <laughs> loved him. Hollywood took one look at what he was like in front of a movie camera, and they said, we've got to have more of this. You know, there's an interesting thing that you talk about in the book, uh, that his musical talent obviously made him famous. But in the end, it was his personality that made him famous. I was watching a video of my little girl. At the age of three or so, I decided to start introducing her to various recording artists, music, musicians. And I played her a video of Louis Armstrong singing What a Wonderful World, beautifully dressed. The band, as you'd said, was multi-ethnic. It's just stunning and startling. And at the end, I had also taught her the word exquisite. And she said the word exquisite after oh seeing goodness. that. Because that's what it is. It just makes you happy. It makes right. all of us that's happy. Right. What a talent. I, I think I wrote somewhere in the book, he was the sort of person you could warm your hands on. And uh, uh, your, your little girl's experience is exactly what happened to me uh, when I was, um, I guess, nine years old. And I first saw Armstrong on television, on the Ed Sullivan Show, singing Hello, Dolly, which was then a, a pop hit. Uh, my mother told me to come in from the backyard one Sunday night, that I should see this man, that he wouldn't live forever, and that I'd want to see him. And that was, it wouldn't have been the first jazz I ever heard, because my father liked jazz, but it was absolutely the first time I heard and saw Armstrong. And it made a permanent impression on me. I think it had something to do with the fact that ultimately, I, when I became a musician myself, I wanted to play jazz. And decades later, that I, I felt moved to write about Armstrong and devote quite a bit of my own life to, to trying to, to tease out the answers to these questions that you and I have been talking about. Uh, but it was because I saw him on television. Uh, the movies started it, television finished it. Armstrong was one of the very first black entertainers to appear regularly on network television, which began in 1948. And uh, immediately after that, well, that same year, in 1948, he made his TV debut on The Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, 
and became somebody who appeared on Sullivan every year or two after that. Um, those television appearances, they made all the difference in the world. He was already famous. He was already world famous. But television did something that movies couldn't do. You used this phrase a little earlier. Television brought people into your home. Yep. At a time when most Americans had never had a black person in their home. Uh, they had one on their television, and he was one who was, uh, in a word, irresistible. And they didn't resist him. They loved him. Terry, I want to read something from you and get your response. You know, sure. you're a reviewer yourself. A uh, Washington Post reviewer wrote this about Pops, which was the 2009 biography of, yep. of Louis Armstrong. He writes this. Let's propose that the best jazz expresses either the joy or the pain of making music. We can easily list the agonistas, Miles, Billie Holiday, Charlie Parker, Nina Simone. But whom do we turn to for joy? In a pinch, sure. Fats Waller, Art Tatum, Ella Fitzgerald. But to get the biggest pickup in the shortest span of time, I put on Louis Armstrong. He could be crooning Gone Fishing with Bing Crosby or crowing I've Got the World on a String or else blowing the brass off his horn in Dipper Mouth Blues, an explosion of sound so ecstatic as to make the blues impossible. The end result is always the same. I walk away a happier man. It wasn't until I read Terry Teachout's exceptional biography that I realized quite how problematic happiness can be or how heroic. Well, I didn't write that, but I wish I had. No, that was the Washington Post critic, but you know what? You couldn't ask for better words, Terry. No, you, you couldn't, and it expresses exactly how I feel about Armstrong, that there is, there is something heroic in his determination not to be crushed by life. Because look at what his life, not the successes of his later life, but look at what his childhood was like. Armstrong himself said that if he hadn't become a musician, he might have ended up on the gallows. Uh, which I think is just a perfectly realistic uh, mm-hmm. way of acknowledging, you know, how his life might have taken shape. But no, uh, he embraced happiness. He embraced uh, acceptance of of that which we cannot change, and he embraced the go- the gospel of work as a way of transforming and ennobling life. And the result is an art that is in the best possible sense of the phrase, infectiously happy. I really do not see, as this, as this writer says, I do not see how you can listen to Louis Armstrong and not come away smiling. Yeah, I dare people, actually. And, and, and it shows you their basic desire either to not be happy or just be, they're incapable. Some people, as you know, Terry, I think are incapable of being happy. Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, including some jazz musicians. <laughs> including some jazz, and some playwrights, and some actors. Terry yeah. Teachout, uh, thank you so much for all this time, and I'm looking forward to getting to see the play. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And this is Our American Stories, and again, Pops, The Life of Louis Armstrong, and Satchmo at the Waldorf, celebrating Louis Armstrong, who died on this day in history, July 6, 1971, a truly unique American character. What a wonderful Yo, Mike Check, Mike Check. 
Yeah, here you go. Oh, nah, he, he over here. Yeah, I heard he got that hot new thing. It's called Switch. Let's get it going. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and that's Will Smith you're listening to rapping the song Switch. And, well, you heard the last story. If you didn't go to ouramericannetwork.org, you heard the last story about Will Smith talking about how he became the star of the 1990s hit TV show, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. A little bit of luck, a little bit of grit, and, well, Quincy Jones pushing him right into it and doing the sale for him. You learn a lot about Quincy in that particular story. Quincy was more than a musician, obviously. A lot more than a musician, a heck of a salesman in the end. Now we're about to listen to Smith tell a more sober story from his youth as he made the switch in his freshman year from an almost all-white Catholic school into an all-black public school. Here's Will Smith. Uh, so I, I went to uh, Catholic school uh, up to eighth grade with uh, all white kids and probably two or three black kids, but you know predominantly white school. And then I went to my neighborhood high school in ninth grade that was 99% black kids. Um, so the first day that I, I walk in to ninth grade, I walked into the lunchroom and you know, it was like 500 kids. And for, to this day, I don't know why I did this. I'm sure it was because I was, I was nervous and you, you know, I got the, I have a thing with fear. I don't like being scared. So I'm sure I was, I walked in, uh, I looked around and I said, excuse me, can I have your attention? Can I have your attention, please? He's here. He's here right now. Thank you. Thank you. And people was kind of looking. And there was this one dude, and he was sitting there. And he looked up to me. He said, man, don't nobody give a that you here. Right? And I said, hey, just give me 10 minutes. Your girl going to care. Right? And he was like, all right. And you got to watch that nod. That nod is not a good nod. He was like. And I was like, okay. So I went, so I'm walking up the steps. We're out of the lunchroom and I forgot about it. So we're going and I'm walking up the steps and he had taken one of those combination locks and he put the lock in the palm of his hand and put, his, put the, uh, the loop around his knuckle and he was holding the lock in his hand. And as I was walking up the steps, he cracked me in the side of my head with the lock. And I went down, I was out, I don't remember nothing. I still got the lump on my head. You can't see it because I got my hair, but I still, like, there's still a lump. So I remember I fell down, I hit my mouth on the steps, all of that stuff, you know. So I went up, so I'm in the principal's office, all of that, the police come, and I got the ice on my lips, and I'm, I'm sitting in the principal's office. And my father comes in, he sees me, and, and you know, I'm telling the story now, the police are there, and I remember I saw this kid, they put him in handcuffs and took him out of the school. And I'm looking, sitting in the principal's office and I'm watching the police take him out and put him in the back of a police car. And I just couldn't believe it had escalated to a kid being removed from, from school. And I was laying in my bed 
that night and I was just feeling like and I had the recognition that I had caused this kid to throw his life away, right? And he was kicked out of school and I never knew what, what happened to him, but I, I, I have a sense that it, it, it didn't go well beyond there. And I felt a deep sense of regret and a deep sense that I had caused an emotion in a person that made them do that. And that, that feeling of regret turned into a sort of a fear of how much power I had. And I was like, everything I say and do has that kind of effect on other human beings. And in that moment, I decided that I would never walk into a room and do anything other than inspire and uplift and enlighten people and help people to be the greater versions of themselves. And I would never do anything that would cause people to, or to rile up the darkest, dirtiest parts of people. I only wanted to enliven and enlighten and inspire. And I remember laying in my bed that night and I made that promise to myself and I made that promise to God. And it's something that has completely shaped how I approach people, how I approach moments, how I walk into rooms, how I deal with every human being on this earth. To him and to his family, I want to send uh, my deepest apologies and I hope my, my words and my sincerity uh, reach you and I, I hope your life uh, has gone well for you. And that about tells you everything you need to know about Will Smith as a young man, as a grown man. Feelings of regret about his words. By the way, we heard this from Pat Williams over and over during our leadership summit. And Pat, one of the great writers on leadership in this country, and we heard about it from Bear Bryant. We heard about it from the athletes. So many people are words. They're so powerful, and they can determine outcomes. And for a young man to understand this at the ripe old age of perhaps 14, and to understand that he caused this, most of us would have just blamed the kid who hit us over the head. And I, most adults would blame the kid who hit us over the head with a lock for a joke. But my goodness, it's animated everything about Will Smith's life. Look at his work. Look at where he stands. Look at how white America, black America, and everybody in between in the world views Will Smith. What he puts out is what he gets back, folks. This is Lee Habib. And Sly Stallone's story, Denzel Washington's, Gene Wilder's, Al Pacino's. We have so many of these on OurAmericanNetwork.org. And it's life lessons from these folks, too. They're not like the other kids, a lot of these men and women that we hear from. Will Smith's story, here on Our American Stories. There's a killer on the road
is Our American Stories. And back in the day, Opportunity called people of courage to chase the sun into the plains of the new American frontier. These men and women shaped a nation and birthed a new American mythology. Today, with the passing of time, the myth of the notorious highway robber Black Bart is coming face to face with reality. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of Black Bart. Ralphie's fantasy encounter with Black Bart in the 1983 film A Christmas Story leads one to believe that Black Bart was some desperado. What have we got here, folks? Well, we figure he's Black Bart, uh, Ralph. Well, says me, a trusty old Red Rider carbine action to on the shop range model air rifle. Lucky I got a compass in the stock. Well, I think I better have a look here. No, he's not. In the 1870s, there was a dime novel that was loosely based on Black Bart's true story. A Christmas Story author, Gene Shepard, read this novel as a kid and included Ralphie's reincarnation of Black Bart as a desperado. Okay, Ralphie, you win this time, but we'll be back! Idiots, Bart! But if you do come back, you'll be pushing up daisies! But Black Bart's real story is far more fantastical than Ralphie's imagination. To tell the story of America's most successful and eccentric stagecoach robber is one of America's greatest storytellers and author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Roger McGrath is also a regular on the History Channel. Let's begin with Dr. Roger McGrath and the story of Highwaymen Black Bart. Black Bart was the most successful highwayman in American history. For more than eight years, this would be from 1875 to 1883, he preyed on stagecoaches, robbing 29 of them. No other road agent could match Black Bart's record. Moreover, Black Bart was a gentleman. He always treated everyone courteously and took only the express box. He left the passengers untouched. Black Bart probably got away with upwards of $30,000. That would be something like $2 million in today's money. Black Bart's real name was Charles Bowles. He was born on a farm in upstate New York in 1831. His parents were recent immigrants from England. Little is known about his early years other than he grew up as a typical farm boy. At age 18, he and his older brother David left the farm to join the gold rush of 1849. They first prospected on the American River and then throughout the Motherlode country. Life in the diggings was rugged and many a prospector died from disease, accident, or gunplay. David Bowles was one of those who met an early end. He grew ill and died in July 1852. Here's Black Bart biographer Gail Jenner. Charles was devastated. He had been the one to truly want to come out to California. He felt guilty. 
He was a restless soul. That played very heavily into the choices he made later on. Charles continued to prospect, in fact, for another two years. And then he drifted back to the Midwest. In Decatur, Illinois, he met and married a girl named Mary and settled down and began raising a family. When the Civil War erupted, Charles enlisted in the Union Army. For more than three years, he served with distinction. He fought in several major battles and was severely wounded in one of them, but returned to fight again. He even served under General Sherman on his brutal march to the sea. Here's Civil War historian Harry Jones. To march with Sherman's army, you certainly are fit. He was very demanding of his soldiers. And being able to understand what trails will get you where, what trails could be easily ambushed, and therefore you set up defenses for them at the proper places, that would be of value to someone who later becomes known as Black Bart. Charles rose to the rank of first sergeant before this last battle, and then just before the war ended, was commissioned a second lieutenant. After the war, his gold fever returned. He left his wife Mary and his daughters in Illinois to go off to the mines of Montana and Idaho on foot. Every so often, he sent Mary a letter, saying that he'd be on his way home soon. The last letter Mary received came from Silver Bow, Montana in August 1871. Why he stopped writing after that, we don't know. As the months went by with no further word, Mary grew frantic and finally sold the family home to raise money for her search for her husband. Meanwhile, the missing husband continued prospecting. But as word as Montana's riches spread, the competition for claims increased. Well, you can thank Mr. Wells and Mr. Fargo. They just bought me out. Seems like they aimed to buy up the whole territory. Large companies rushed to capitalize on local strikes and eliminate the competition. They'd buy up businesses and all lands surrounding successful claims. Here again is Gail Jenner. There was mining going on in various sections of Montana. He did have a claim where he was in competition with other people also setting up claims, and there was a lot of violence that was occurring around him. Mr. Bow! Welcome, gentlemen. What can I do for you? We want to buy your claim. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. Good day. It doesn't look like much is coming. There'll be plenty just as soon as the water comes up. Good day. It'd be a shame if it didn't. Wells Fargo began consolidating its stage lines for new mining towns in Idaho, Utah, and Montana. Rumors of the company going into the mining business make Bowl suspicious. Just days after receiving offers for his claim, the water supply suddenly dried up. His claim was now worthless. Bowles is convinced it's no coincidence. Here's author of the American West, W.C. Jameson. What Wells Fargo did 
is divert the stream from which Bowles was panning the gold to where he was forced to abandon his gold mine. Many historians believe that this was the moment he set his sight on one of the most powerful companies in the West, Wells Fargo, making the company out to be responsible for his misfortune. A hardworking miner and former Union soldier with dreams of striking it rich made a bold decision to extract revenge. In 1874, Bowles left his claim and moved to the cosmopolitan hub of Northern California. Consumed by revenge, Bowles completely broke ties with his family, cut himself off from the past, and reinvented himself. He moved to San Francisco, all the while nursing this anger, this hatred toward Wells Fargo. In preparation for his revenge, Bowles did his homework. I watched the stages from a second camp, far from my home camp to ascertain the exact time they passed. I found them to be at the same spot every morning at 7 a.m. All over Northern California, they were shipping lots of gold from one place to another. They had over 3,000 miles of stagecoach roads. It was a big target for thieves. And when we come back, we're going to continue with this riveting story, the real story, the story behind the story of Black Bart. And by the way, to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. American stories and we continue with the story of Charles Bowles aka Black Bart and we had learned that lots of gold was shipping all around this country from place to place and my goodness that made those gold carriers ripe targets for highwaymen that is bandits let's continue with the story of Black Bart In July 1875, a stagecoach with a Wells Fargo Express box was working its way up a steep grade on the way from Sonora to Copperopolis in the Motherload country. Just a few miles short of Copperopolis, a hooded figure suddenly jumped from behind a boulder. Put down that box. Please. Well, the demand from this hooded figure was reinforced by a double-barreled shotgun aimed at the stagecoach driver. The robber's head was covered by a flour sack with two holes cut for the eyes, and even his boots couldn't be seen. 
They were covered by thick socks to avoid leaving tracks. As the driver grabbed the express box, Iwaman yelled an order over his shoulder. If he dares shoot, give him a solid volley, boys! The driver glanced up at the hillside behind the highwayman and thought he saw at least a half dozen rifle barrels aimed his way. It's called a Quaker gun trick. Used in the Revolutionary and Civil Wars, it's named for the Quakers, who, like bulls, oppose violence. The trick uses sticks to look like guns and logs to look like cannons to fool the enemy into believing they're facing a force much larger than they actually are. With a real sense of urgency, the driver threw the express box onto the road. The highwayman quickly removed several bags of gold coins. A frightened woman passenger tossed her purse out of the stagecoach and into the road. The highwayman picked it up bowed and returned it to her, saying in a deep and resonant voice, Madam, I have no desire of your money. In that respect, I honor only the good office of Wells Fargo. I don't know what you're reaching for, friend. Charles has hope sticks through the bushes so that it appears that there could be other guns around. Just give him what he wants. He's got his mask on, he's, he's got a duster on, he's got his gun pointed. He was an enigma. He was a very hard man to figure out. Good day to you, sir. Thank you, Kai. He disappeared into the brush and escaped on foot over 120 miles through rugged terrain, through the mountains, and back to San Francisco. He returned to high society in plain sight, where he developed an alter ego. He called himself Charles Bolton. Bolton's reputation grew as he became known as a successful gold prospector and socialite. Here's Old West historian Chris Entz. Charles Bowles went by Charles Bolton because it sounds very sophisticated. It has a certain dignity associated with it. He is as comfortable living in the wilderness as he is in the city. Yes, sir. More champagne. Circumstances compelled me. I yielded to the temptation of crime only after enduring severe struggles from which I had no control. Following his first robbery, Bowles took odd jobs that pulled him away from the city and gave him access to new targets. He was trying just a little bit of everything. He tried school teaching for a while, which would have been unnatural for him because he was intelligent. He was sharp. <laughs> now let us turn to the case of Summerfield and that notorious bandit, Black Bart. He's incredibly well-read. In addition to Shakespeare and that kind of thing, he also reads the Sacramento Union. And in the Union paper is a story written by an attorney who does make up this character named Bartholomew Graham, or Black Bart. Charles Bowles adopted the name and transformed into highwayman Black Bart. Following Black Bart's first robbery, Wells Fargo detective James Hume was put on the case. Here again is Gail Jenner and historian Marshall Trimble. James Hume chose to become the kind of person who would never quit. He has an obsessive 
compulsive kind of desire to make things right. Gentlemen. This is the beginning of this detective period. When there's a robbery, you don't just get out there and look for horse tracks. It gets much more sophisticated. Technology and such is starting to change as to how to track these guys down. And this is what Hume is uh, really adept at. Welcome to school, boy. Hume was one of the great detectives of the Old West. But this Black Bart character had him stumped. Gentlemen, our efforts up to this point have been unacceptable. He's making a mockery of us, and I will not stand for that. Hume begins to put together that this man is quite capable of covering long distances in between the robberies. He knows that it's not a multiple-person job, that this is a, a lone man. Beginning with a second stagecoach robbery, Black Bart would leave behind a verse or two of poetry. Hume, a man as cunning and restless as the bandit himself, read it. I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor and for riches. But on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of... Black Buck. Poet. He's mocking me. He's mocking me! Hume didn't know what to do with witness testimonies. What was his behavior, his demeanor? Did he threaten you or take any of your personal belongings? No, sir, he was polite. Said please and thank you. And that's what's left of the cash box over there. The public had doubts about Detective Hume and Wells Fargo. Hume took it personally. Wells Fargo is putting more and more pressure on James Hume. The newspapers are having a field day. There were lots and lots of articles about who is this Black Bart, and people are ridiculing both James Hume and Wells Fargo. They're becoming a joke. And so they're determined now to try and figure this out. And lots of pressure is coming from lots of different directions. Here's a quote from Hume in the San Francisco Examiner in 1884. I refuse to buy a romanticized image of Black Bart as fabricated by the press. He is a fraud who is Robin Hoodwinking a gullible public. Jim Hume began to piece together a physical description of Black Bart. Bart was armed, but he didn't shoot back, though. Nope. Not his style. No horse track. And he escapes on foot. As Black Bart's stage robberies continued, the price yeah. on his head increased. Wells Fargo offered a $300 reward. The state of California chipped in another $300. And the U.S. government... 200. The $800 total was really quite a sum back in the 1870s. Something like $80,000 today. And when we come back, what happens next? And what a story, by the way. Feels a little bit like The Great Gatsby with a little bit of Jack London in it. It's a thriller, it's an American classic. Never knew the rest of this story, and you're about to hear it. Charles Bowles becomes Charles Bolton. The world, at the time and now, knows him as Black Bart. This is our American stories. The story of Black Bart continues after these messages. And again, to hear all that we do, go to ourAmericanNetwork.org. That's ourAmericanNetwork.org. 
www.thepeopleofgod.org. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Charles Bowles, a.k.a. Black Bart. And by the way, we love telling stories about the American West. And not in this particular case, but in so many cases, we use Phil Anschutz's terrific two books, Out Where the West Begins, as a subject and source material for those stories. We've done Samuel Colt's story, Jedediah Smith's, Levi Strauss's, which is a stemwinder, and the Coors family, you know, you take for granted Coors beer. Where did it come from? And who are the men and women who got it going? And why Denver? Why Colorado? These people came from Germany. Well, go to ouramericannetwork.org for all that we do and hundreds and hundreds of hours of American storytelling, classic American storytelling are there. When we last left off, Black Bart, well, the price on his head kept going up. Wells Fargo had money on his head. The American government... Lots of other private businesses. Well, there's a reason for it. Black Bart, well, he just kept hitting those stagecoaches. And as he kept hitting them, the price on his head, it just kept going up. And now we return to the story of Charles Bowles, a.k.a. Black Bart. Black Bart's luck nearly ran out on his 23rd stagecoach robbery. A stage was on its way from Laporte to Oroville when Black Bart blocked its path. Easy, boys. Easy does it. Keep those hands where I can see them. Nice and easy. Would you be so kind as to throw down that box? I'll get it right now for you, sir. Instead, the Wells Fargo guard swung his rifle around and fired. Black Bart leaped into the brush and ran for it. They didn't know it, but the bullet fired at Black Bart creased the outlaw's head. A fraction of an inch change in trajectory would have spelled the end for Black Bart. On a Sunday in November 1883, Black Bart's luck finally did run out. Early that morning, a stagecoach pulled out of Sonora bound for Milton. The driver of the stage was a veteran of the run, Raisin McConnell. At Reynolds Ferry on the Stanislaus River, McConnell picked up a passenger, 19-year-old Jimmy Rolleri. Rolleri operated the ferry, but it was still early in the morning. He thought he might go up the hill ways and do a little hunting. When the stage began the long climb, Rolleri jumped off with a Winchester rifle in hand. The stage had nearly reached the summit when a hooded highwayman leaped from the brush. He trained a shotgun on McConnell. Throw down that box. Uh, okay. Please. Bolt it to the floor. 
Well, it's lucky for you I brought my tools. Easy does it. We wouldn't want to spook the horses. Now come down off that stage, friend, and start walking and don't stop. McConnell tried to signal for Larry, who was casually walking up the road. Finally, McConnell got his attention. Just then, the highwayman straightened up with a sack full of gold. Or Larry fired. Highwayman stumbled, but managed to spring into the brush and disappear. McConnell reported the holdup. The local county sheriff, Ben Thorne, and his deputies were soon at the scene of the crime. They found a number of things the highwayman had left behind in his hasty departure. There was a black derby hat, two paper bags containing crackers and sugar, a pair of binoculars, and a handkerchief. Once back in his office, Sheriff Thorne inspected the items left behind at the scene of the robbery. He noticed some badly faded lettering on the handkerchief. He turned the handkerchief over to Wells Fargo detective Jim Hume, who in turn gave the handkerchief to Harry Morris. Hume had hired Morris six months earlier to do nothing but work on the robberies of Black Bart. Morris had recently retired as sheriff of Alameda County, and now he had his own private detective agency. He was one of the great lawmen of the Old West. Fresh sign. When uh, James discovers the handkerchief, he was delighted, and as he examines it, he sees the mark FX07, and he knows this was, in fact, a laundry mark. This man must be found. Hume decides we're going to have to track this laundry mark. Take your men and leave no stone unturned. So they go to 93 different laundries in the San Francisco area. Yes, sir. Can I help you? Yes. Is that your mark? Uh, yes, that's our mark. From one of our customers. C.E. Bolton. He's a local gold prospector. Since Hume thought that Black Bart lived in San Francisco, Morris began his investigation there. Now, under the guise of a business proposition, Morris was introduced to Charles Bolton. Bolton looked every inch the mine owner he purported to be. He was dressed in an expensive tailored wool suit and a bowler hat. He carried a walking stick, a diamond ring was on one finger, and a heavy gold watch was suspended from a gold chain. He was handsome with deep-set blue eyes. He stood about five foot eight and was ramrod straight. He looked anything but a robber. Morris managed to get Bolton to an office where Jim Hume waited. So word on the street is you're quite the successful gold prospector. Tell me, Mr. Bolton, where are your mines located? Well, if it's one thing I've learned, sir, it's not to disclose too much information to a perfect stranger. <laughs> Mr. Bolton, I'd like you to meet Detective James Hume. Minutes later, a captain from the San Francisco Police Department arrived, took Bolton into custody. At the police station, Bolton was placed under arrest. 
He feigned astonishment and asked for what possible cause was he being arrested. Hume answered, because you are Black Bart. The infamous highwayman and poet. I had a premonition that this would happen today. Aren't you the lucky one? Charles Bowles wanted them to know that it was him. And to be able to tease and to play with the people that have been chasing him and trying to get at this, it gave him pleasure. You do want somebody to know. Buckbart pleaded guilty to the last of his robberies. Whereas the said C.E. Bolton is convicted of robbery by his own admission, he is therefore ordered, adjudged, and sentenced to San Quentin, the state prison for the period of seven years. He became a model prisoner. Take him away. And was released in January 1888. After serving a little more than four years, he was then 57 years old. Reporters waited outside for his release. Black Bart, are you going back to your life of robbing stagecoaches? No. I'm giving up my life of crime. Are you going to go back to writing poetry? Did you hear me, son? I said I'm done committing crimes. <laughs> After being released from San Quentin, Black Bart returned to San Francisco. And there, he was offered the opportunity of appearing on stage in a theatrical production. Somebody wanted to take advantage of his notoriety. But he refused. Jim Hume had his men shadow Black Bart. But suddenly one day, early in March 1888, Black Bart gave him the slip. Bowles was a pretty smart guy. It is likely that he knew that, that Hume was following him. Hume perhaps had a hunch that maybe Bowles might return to his nefarious ways. Reports had Black Bart in several different Western states. Then in Mexico, Canada, Japan, China, and finally Australia. None of these reports, though, was ever confirmed. Black Bart, America's most successful highwayman, had simply disappeared. And what a story. And if you want to hear it again or share it with friends, again, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Boy, this story has it all. Guy's comfortable in the wilderness, in the big city. His brother dies early. He blames himself, tries to make a living honestly, feels like a big bad business had taken advantage of him. And by the way, we love telling stories about good businesses, but sometimes there are some bad ones. And he felt like Wells Fargo had cheated him out of his stake, and so he was going to take it back. What a story and great work as always, Greg Hengler. And by the way, Black Bart and James Hume... Reminds me of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Two people joined at the hip forever. And they are. Not sure why this isn't a movie, or hasn't been, but it should be. This is Lee Habib. Charles Bolton's story. Charles Knowles' story. Black Bart's story. They're all the same guy. 
here on Our American Stories.